Amen. While you're, while you're standing, let me read God's word for us this morning, this evening. Man. This is like, um, honest, I'll be honest, this is like preaching your own funeral. Like out of town friends and family and everybody's, in, like the streams are crossed. Nobody should, you know, this is weird. Um, anyways, James chapter 1, 26 through 27, hear God's word. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Father God, we come to you this evening because you have had mercy upon us. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, or that you would use your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, Lord, that we can see how to love and honor and serve you. For the sake of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So our passage tonight comes from the book of James. Uh, This is perhaps the oldest book of the New Testament, written before even the Jerusalem Council, which we find in Acts chapter 15. Now, church tradition tells us that the author of this book is none other than the half-brother of Jesus himself. And when we think about this, just think that no one knew Jesus better than James. They shared a mom. They shared a table a workshop, probably even a bed. And yet when we read the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, we find that James didn't really know Jesus. He didn't understand who he was or what he came to do. Jesus, James thought, was out of his mind crazy until after the crucifixion when the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to his brother. See, James knew Jesus as brother long before he knew Jesus as Lord. And yet, Yet knowing Jesus didn't make James proud. Now sharing a mom with the Messiah didn't give him this sense of superiority. Now, even if I'm in the proximity of greatness, I like to brag and, and take a little credit. Now, I've got some family in the restaurant business in Charleston, South Carolina, and I've been known to insert myself in the conversation of random strangers when they're talking about visiting Charleston to tell them to go to those restaurants and to have a great meal. You know, I have done nothing to to claim their success, yet I proudly identify with their award-winning brand. See, but what does James do? He actually starts his book by calling himself the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he doesn't tout that privileged biological relationship to the one who has at this point proven to be the king of the universe, And and what do you call the brother of a king? A prince. Instead, James owns his role as servant. See, recognizing who Jesus really was drove James to his knees. Literally, the, the early church historian Eusebius said this about James, that he used to enter alone into the temple and be found kneeling and praying for forgiveness for the people so that his knees grew hard like a camel's because of his constant worship of God. 
from his excessive righteousness, he was called the just. So not Prince James or King James, this is James the just. James the humble because of the time he spent on his knees begging God's mercy and forgiveness for those who did not yet know Jesus the way he knew Jesus. See, some scholars like E.J. Goodspeed have said that the book of James is just a handful of pearls dropped one by one into the hearer's mind. But, but James is doing more than just slinging out nuggets here, right? He desperately wants everyone to follow Jesus and to know Jesus. And he writes this letter so that others could see what it looks like to follow Jesus, who he believed to be the only way to the Father. See, some people call this book a, a book of practical application, which is, it's, that's actually very appealing to the moralist inside of me. I don't know about you, right? Like, I want a punch list. I'm not a planner. Um, I'm a doer. In a lot of ways, I'm like that man who ran up to Jesus and, and said, hey, Jesus, what's that one thing I'm missing to get eternal life? I, I really don't want Jesus to add too much to my plate, though. I just want him to give me that missing piece. I want to be found worthy of him already. I want him to say, you know what, looking at your spiritual resume, I'd say we're, we're pretty good, right? I don't think I'm alone here. In his book, You Are Not Your Own, the author Alan Noble explores the consequences of believing this idea that we are completely responsible and in control of our own lives. And he shows the supreme value that our Western society has placed on things like efficiency and technique. See, we're constantly on the hunt for more information and for coaching to provide these missing pieces to help us to be more effective and productive in every aspect of our life, right? From, from work to exercise to diet to parenting, even to religion. A friend of mine in Denver calls pastors content horse. Endlessly consuming the latest books and podcasts and blogs in hopes of improving their craft of sermonizing. Uh, another friend points out that, that Christians already have more information than they have the ability to obey. See, the problem was just like it was in, James, in the day of James. It's not a deficiency in our knowledge, but it's the discrepancy between our orthodoxy, which is our right belief, and our orthopraxy, which is our right faith. See, James doesn't just provide the missing pearls uh, to complete the necklace of faith. He unveils something so counterintuitive that it requires a complete life transformation. See, he calls his faith kinsmen to come and find joy in the midst of trials. Meanwhile, we're desperately doing anything to avoid suffering. He calls them to pursue humility and simplicity as opposed to seeking wealth and pride. To stand firm in the face of temptation, putting their own desires to death. To patiently listen before speaking instead of exploding or retorting in anger. And putting the word into practice and not just hearing it. And if this weren't challenging enough, he concludes by giving a picture of pure religion. And, and, and as Zach alluded to earlier today, you know, religion is a term that carries a lot of negative connotations, doesn't it? It's not too difficult to understand why. When, when the most popular podcast in America features the dramatic rise and fall of a megalomaniac reformed pastor. And these new documentaries now show the opulence and deception and abuse found at the rotting core of perhaps the most influential Protestant church in the world. 
whose music is sung by millions of worshipers each and every Sunday, probably even in some of your churches. And then rarely a day goes by when when we don't see some sort of scandal or cover-up involving the church in the headline news. So it's no surprise then that, that according to the most recent Gallup poll of the most trusted professions in America was topped by nurses with 81% of respondents agreeing that they had high to very high levels of honesty and ethics. Medical doctors checked in at a distant second place with 67%. Then grade school teachers, 64%. Pharmacists at 63%. Clergy, or religious professionals, and we'll put that in quotes, came in way down the list at 36%, which is a new all-time low, sandwiched right in that sweet spot between auto mechanics and judges. It could be worse, though, right? As long as you aren't a member of Congress, you know, at 9%, or, or a political lobbyist at 5%. So you don't need to have a seminary degree to understand that many of our neighbors bristle at the mention of the term religion, and they flat out reject the idea that this is something worth seeking. And you know what? James would be the very first one to say, I agree with that because I reject that version of religion as well. The religion that's all talk and no walk is is just a show. It's a charade. Let me reread our passage for us. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, this is a a Presbyterian sermon, so we have to have three points, and here they come. James is happy to oblige us, right? What does pure religion look like? Simply this, restrained words, number one. Number two, open hands. And number three, a guarded heart. Now, first is, is restrained words. Literally, he says a bridled tongue. And if you know what a bridle is, well, that's a that's a headgear which you place on a horse that restricts and controls its movement. The straps of leather that, that hold that metal bit in their mouth. Um, so that when the beast tries to go in a direction or at a speed that the rider does not want it to go, they're made extremely uncomfortable. And they're going to turn or slow down or even stop. So restrain your tongue. James isn't saying here, hey, here's the list of no-no words. Don't say these. It's pretty easy to watch what you say in public unless you're a politician or Steve Harvey. Um, but, but, But imagine Apple or Google... Revealing that their products, any time that they've ever been powered on, are constantly recording everything they hear. Not just when they're being used to make a call, but just when they're sitting on the counter or in your pockets. Just all the time. And that gets saved to a cloud and then transcribed by somebody overseas. And and now it's available for anyone to search and peruse with ease. Now, how, how comfortable are you of your words? It's kind of terrifying, although it may actually be true. We don't know. They're probably doing that. But there's a, there's a power that's greater than even the most intrusive tech giant, right? See, every word ever spoken is known by God. The Father, nothing is hidden from him. And he not only hears the words that we speak, but he knows the ones that we think. And we're going to be held accountable for them all. 
We might use the right words when we're on the clock or when we're in the church, but, but how about in our homes or, or at the ball field? Echoing Jesus, James says that what comes out of our lips is an indication of what's really inside of our hearts. So do my words, are they, are they building up? Are they tearing down? Do they bring life? Are they wreaking havoc? Is my religion evident only through my Christian vocabulary? Or is it also felt in my tone? Do, do I not so subtly insult those who think differently on politics or social issues? Are my words aiding or are they hindering the evangelistic gospel? See, I'm, not, I'm, I'm responsible not only for the intention of my words, but also the way that they are received. Now, I, I used to claim that, that my love language was sarcasm. Okay? But, but that's not true for my five-year-old, or my eight-year-old, or my 11-year-old, or my, or my 36-year-old wife. No, my girls living at home. I've hurt a lot more folks than I can name with, with careless jokes spoken at the wrong time in the wrong place to the wrong person. And, and you know what? That's, that's on me. It's not on them. Now, the second sign of true religion is, is this open hands, literally visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. That Greek word that we translate visit is, man, I had it. Man, this is a trial sermon. Episkemi, right? It can also be translated as care for. Hebrews 2.6, quoting Psalm 8, says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The same word. And this word implies movement, love, and relationship. See, James could have used the word welcome. Just like in Matthew 25, where Jesus commends the welcoming of strangers, the receiving those who come to us and practicing gospel hospitality. But when it comes to orphans and widows, the command is not just to open the door and invite them in, but actually to move towards them, to seek them out because they are unable to move. See, without others in the home to care and provide for them, orphans and widows are the the most vulnerable members in every society. It's it's why our hearts have gone out these last two years, first to, to Kathy Russell, right? And now to Deb Atkinson. We know how easily they can become unseen and unknown and unloved and unheard. I've I've heard many stories from folks who have been in state-run institutions, orphanages overseas. And universally, the most striking thing about those buildings and their visits, with the dark hallways and the large rooms that are filled with cribs, is the silence A hundred babies in a room and not a single sound. Little William is louder than that room. He can stay. You don't have to take him out. But you know what? They learn quickly that it doesn't matter how loudly they scream that no one is coming for them. No one's going to pick them up. No one will change them or feed them. So they don't waste their breath. So James points out, though, in in the next chapter, that that our tendency is to be generous to those who can repay us, those who can return the favor. See, that's not love. It's just a transaction. It's an investment in in yourself. Now, did you all enjoy our our dinner tonight? Okay. No, that wasn't for you. It was for us. Because next time we go to your church, 
We want a meal just as good as that or better. Okay? <laughs> Visiting orphans and, and widows in their affliction is totally different. It's, it's often heartbreaking. It's incredibly difficult. Every single orphan and widow is a product of trauma. And they've suffered great personal loss. See, their, their problems can't be fixed with empty platitudes or, or drive-by donations. It takes years to get to the place of even verbalizing that inner pain. But God, our Father, as James says, is also, as we find in Psalm 68, the Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows in his holy habitation. See, pure religion requires the children of God to reflect the heart of their Father by moving towards loving and being in relationship, visiting those he loves. The third and final image that we have of pure religion is, is one of a guarded heart, keeping unstained from the world. And, and now it can be easy to think, well, I'm not a max axe murderer or, or, or serial fornicator, and I'm not on staff at St. Pat's. You know, I don't have that much to worry about. <laughs> I'm mostly unstained. But, but James, here's, here's where James comes in. He reminds us that the effects of our sin are far-reaching. We far too easily cave into our own selfish desires. And what is God's standard? Is perfection. See, in the parable of the sower, Jesus says that there's going to be some who come and hear the word and at, at first appear to receive the gospel, but ultimately fall away because they're consumed by what? The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The world stains us all, not because of some inherent design flaw or, or defect in God's good creation, but because of what we have made of it. See, riches are deceitful in that they enable us to believe that we are sufficient, that we don't need God, we just need a better technique. You might object, well, I'm not rich. You know, I'm, I'm here, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a minister. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that every person in this room is a member of the richest 1% of people in the history of this world. James says earlier that God is the giver of every good gift, but that in our fallen state we have this tendency to look to the gifts and not their giver for our deliverance. What did John Calvin say? He said that, that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And we have the uncanny ability of worshiping anything except for the one true God. That, that French skeptic Voltaire remarked, in the beginning God created man in his image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. So the real question is not am I stained by the world, but how stained am I? So just three steps, right? Restrained words and open hands and, and guarded hearts and it sounds simultaneously so simple and also completely impossible. You know, my, my wife is the head coach of our daughter's 10U softball team, and I'm, I'm her assistant coach. And I get to work in the batting cages with these 10-year-old girls, and I'm, I'm just telling them, see the ball, hit the ball, and they're looking at me like, okay, you want to you take the bat? It's a lot harder to do it than it is to say it. So we know what religion should look like. We know what it looks like to hit a home run every single swing. But how do we do that? Well, the answer is we can't. But Jesus did. We must look to Jesus. Right? Jesus bridled his tongue. Jesus, the word made flesh who spoke all of creation into existence. 
the most powerful voice in the universe, and yet in his agony on the cross, after being abandoned by his friends and mocked by those around him, what does he do? He doesn't curse or condemn or cry out for vengeance. He begs his father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus opened his hands. He visited orphans and widows, and we come to find out that we, we are all orphans and widows. In Luke 168, Zechariah prophesies, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. In Deuteronomy 14, we learn that, that God says that all who belong to his family were first chosen, adopted by God to be his treasured possession. And before being adopted, we were abandoned by the world. We find that in Ezekiel 16. See, Jesus comes to us. Jesus loves us. Jesus initiates a relationship with us. Jesus told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God so loved the world that he sent his son because we couldn't come to him. He stretched out his hands for us. And Jesus guarded his heart. He was not fooled or enticed by the false promises of the world or the enemy. See, he came with a mission that was to seek and to save the lost, and he would not be deterred. He wouldn't stray. Hebrews 7 tells us that he is holy, innocent, and unstained, completely pure. See, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, real body, reasonable soul, came to us, spiritual orphans and widows, offered himself for us, in our affliction of sin and misery, to take upon himself what we deserved, offering his body and laying down his life, declaring my life for yours. See, if we trust in Christ alone, then all he has belongs to us, and all we have done has been nailed with him to the cross. And that's what we remember here at this table tonight. See, his body broken, his blood shed, and and here at this table, he still comes to us, mysteriously and spiritually and really. Because of what he has done for us, not because of what we've done for him. We can know God as our true father. We can live as his true daughters and sons, empowered by his spirit. That like James, we can follow the example of our elder brother, to serve and live for him by restraining our words, opening our hands, and guarding our hearts. Won't you pray with me? Gracious Father, look what you have done for us. God, we don't deserve to come to your table here. Lord, nothing that, that we have done enables us to come here except to admit that, that we have failed. And that we need you. Lord, we long to live the the way that James has described. Lord, Lord, we want a bridled tongue. We We want to open our hands. We want to guard our hearts. And yet we can't do it without you. So we pray, Lord, that you would come. That you would work. That you would move. Do the things that only you can do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.